much fun doing this. Gail Scott joins us right now. You are listening to the Drew Marshall Show, by the way, and the band playing in the background is Space City Rollers. Yes, from Scotland. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? I don't know how to succinctly describe this, and I always struggle because it kind of... I, I've had so many people over the years say to me, dude, you got to read this book or you got to try this this quiz or this personality assessment they tried to get at Myers-Briggs and and get me to listen to Tony Robbins and, uh, and Oprah and oh my Joel goodness Osteen. Joel Osteen yeah. and, ugh. and unless you're in the right pocket ready for whatever's about to be served up to you you just kind of roll your eyes and I don't know and so I've rolled my eyes at so many personality assessment tools over the over the years but I don't know how I got into this originally. It might have been through uh, Richard Rohr, the uh, the monk that we've had on the show before, and he talked about it. And then next thing you know, I've been chatting with Gail Scott from the Enneagram Institute for the last couple of years. Gail Scott has been teaching authorized Riso Hudson Enneagram workshops, uh, Riso Hudson trainings, and teacher certification courses in the U.S. and internationally since 2005. She leads the Enneagram Institute's teacher certification program, program, uh, <laughs> cer- supervising and certifying uh, students to teach authorized workshops and facilitating the required masterclass practicum on workshop teaching. Gail is a certified integral life coach with New Ventures West in San Francisco. She uh, maintains an Enneagram teaching and consulting practice as well as her integral coaching practice in Boulder, Colorado. Boulder, Colorado. Who wrote a song about Boulder, Colorado? Uh, Someone who likes boulders. Isn't that where Cher lives? Let's find out from Gail. Gail, does Cher live anywhere near you? Not that I know of. She used to live near me when I lived in Malibu. Oh. (laughs) Um, Glenn Campbell has written songs about Yes. Uh, Boulder. And that wasn't Columbine, was it? Was Columbine? Columbine is not too far. How far is Columbine from you? Yes, Columbine's another city. I don't know. It's about an hour and a half drive from here. I think. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, listen. We. I don't want to. I don't want to talk about Colorado. I want to talk about the Enneagram, and I want. In particular, yes. today, we're chatting about instincts. And uh, can you just explain to our listeners? Well, first of all, let's just do a quick sum- summary of the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a personality typing system or, or tool that's uh, been around for a long, long time. And it's uh, what? Why am I introducing the Enneagram? Hey, Gail, what's the Enneagram? <laughs> well, it's um, <clears throat> it's actually more than a personality typing system, but that's the superficial value of it. Is yeah. that it actually describes nine variations of temperament? Temperament is uh, ego type. Ego type is personality, and they have found that there are no more, no less than actually nine different temperaments that infants are born with, and we know those as the, as the nine Enneagram types. And it is an ancient system. It wasn't made up by anyone. It goes back as far into history as we've been able to um, see, have you know written records. It goes back to uh, ancient Egyptian and Greek times after that. So it, it describes nine different temperaments, ways of seeing the world, ways of interpreting information, and really it's about um, ways of coping. When we're when we're young, when we're little, when we're growing up, we have to cope. We have to deal with you know life in general, our parents in particular, and you know what's coming at us. And so we develop nine different strategies or sets of uh, defense mechanisms, coping strategies, and that becomes the way that we 
we see life and how we respond to everything. But this is so um, deeply embedded and encoded in us, we're not even really conscious of making the choices that we do. Well, uh, over the last couple of years, I have come to discover that uh, both Tim and I are actually number four, the individualist. Um, so as, as most people, I think, do when it comes to personality uh, assessment-y stuff, such a great description again, um, <laughs> we care more about ourselves than anybody else. Yep. So since Tim and I are both fours, can you explain, just as an example, so there's there's nine, and, and let me just sort of clarify to everybody what, what those nine, nine are. So let me do something. This is from the Enneagram Institute website, EnneagramInstitute.com. The reformer, the rational, idealistic type, and girls, I want you to listen to see if you, if these any of these types r- register with you three, okay? You ready? The reformer, the rational, idealistic type, principled, purposeful, self-controlled, and perfectionistic. Are any of you a reformer? The helper, which is the caring, interpersonal type, uh, demonstrative, generous, people-pleasing, and possessive. The achiever, the success-oriented, pragmatic type, adaptive, excelling, driven, and image-conscious the individualist, number four, which is what Tim and I are, the sensitive, withdrawn type, expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed, and temperamental. No. Shut up. Jerk. <laughs> Am not. Uh, number five, the investigator, the intense, cerebral type, perceptive, innovative, secretive, and isolated. Number six, the loyalist, the committed, security-oriented, engaging, responsible, anxious, and suspicious. I'm going to say Hadge is that. Uh, Number seven, the enthusiast, the busy, fun-loving type, spontaneous, versatile, distractible, and scattered. (laughs) Alex. Uh, The challenger, the powerful, dominating type, self-confident, decisive, willful, and confrontational. And the peacemaker, we still haven't figured out Leanne yet, the easygoing, self-effacing type. Uh, receptive, reassuring, agreeable, and complacent. So there we go. We had to get that out of the way. Now let's get into... Me. No. You. Let's get into what Gail is really here to talk about on the show. Gail? Okay. So we're talking about the the three basic instincts, which we call the instinctual variants. And every person, every human being, every animal, every mammal, has all three of these instincts. And we describe them as the first one being the most primitive being the self-preservation instinct, which is the instinct to survive, to thrive, to keep on living. And the second one is the sexual or attraction instinct, which is the desire to, uh, to procreate and to keep the species going. And the third is the social instinct. Social instinct is about how we relate in community and tribes and groups and uh, our relationship within hierarchies and, and within the, the greater good of, of the group or the community. So we have all three of these instincts, all people do, but what we have found, interestingly, in Enneagram studies is that each person tends to prioritize those three instincts, and one of them becomes our dominant focus of life, our dominant instinct, and one of them is in the middle, and one of them becomes a sort of an orphan instinct, what we call the blind spot instinct that we don't pay attention to. So we find that whatever the dominant instinct is uh, really runs your life as much as, if not more than, uh, uh, the things that run your, your Enneagram type. But these, are our, these instincts are our life force energy, right? It's our, 
our, our, our life drive, our biological nature. And without these three intrinsic drives, we wouldn't have endured. We wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be alive today. So these instincts, they drive all living organisms, all creatures who want to live and thrive. Hmm. And so to really experience our instincts fully, we, we have to experience ourselves as part of the living earth, part of the web of life. And we find that these our instinctual bias, whatever is the top one, the dominant one, just influences everything, including what we're looking for in relationships. But in some way, so interesting, we could say that our instincts are really the most spiritual aspect of us. Why? Because they're all about the intelligent life force, about intelligent design, about evolutionary forces, about sustaining life. And our instinctual nature is that part of us that allows us to, uh, you know, survive on the earth. And so they, all the instincts have very significant functions in our lives. They're part of our biology, our physiology. And we see how animals follow their instincts naturally. They're very present with them, right? They're not thinking about the meeting on Monday morning. They're just allowing the natural intelligence of their instincts in the moment. And we see many, many versions of each of these instinctual behaviors on on Animal Planet or when we're watching animals because they're instinctual. So we can start to recognize the sacredness of nature in us by becoming aware of our own instinctual behaviors and how they how they drive us. Right. But in the animal world, I see all animal groups kind of hunkering down into all three of these instincts. I see animals big time into self-preservation. I see animals obviously into procreation, the sexual attraction mm-hmm. side of things. And then socially, you know, um, you also see those dynamics as well. When I watch the animal shows in HD on the big TV with That's right. with God as the voice. What's his name? Uh, the Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman narrating every stinking thing in the world. So I see animals having mm-hmm. all three of those. They don't That's stack right. them the way humans do, do they? Well, we haven't been able to study that, so we don't know. But okay. we do know that human beings do have all three. As I said, we wouldn't be able to survive if we did not. Mm. However, the interesting thing through the Enneagram work is that we have found that we tend to heavily favor one of these instincts, which is to say that we are sort of obsessed and sometimes even compulsively obsessed with taking care of the needs of one of those three instincts. So if I can talk about what the three instincts are, self-preservation, as I said, is about survival of the organism and health, uh, safety, uh, you know, uh, well-being. It's about taking care of the organism. It's about temperature regulation. Um, It's about developing survival skills. It's also about hearth and home. Like for animals, that has to do with, you know, building a a, a nest or a den. And and in people, of course, you know, we're very focused on our home and our uh, our nest, and we have the same kinds of nesting instincts, or hearth and home instincts. Mm-hmm. It's also about building a kind of foundation, having uh, like uh, um, financial and material resources, so that we're able to take care of ourselves in a in a material way. And so, um, if we are someone who is dominant in the self-preservation instinct, we're going to be focused on all of those issues more specifically and just more throughout the day than than the other three. We're going to be thinking about our health, our safety. We're, we're going to be the kinds of people that, you know, take vitamins and supplements and carry those things around with us and uh, have dress in layers. And when we travel, we, you know, we bring a lot of 
um, things with us to help us uh, stay safe and stay well and stay healthy, and we're just focused on those kinds of, of issues. Okay, in the public, how would I recognize someone whose self-preservation instinct would be their primary instinct? Mm-hmm. Well, as I said, you might notice that they, <laughs> they <laughs> that happens to be me. I'm a self-preservation dominant uh, type one. And so when we're out and about or when we're traveling, we tend to carry a lot of things with us. Like if it's a woman and you look in their purse, you know, I've got Kleenex and vitamins and um, mosquito repellent and bombs and salves and uh, chapstick and creams and band-aids and sort of ready for anything in terms of health and safety and well-being. Yeah. Man, okay. And I, you know, you and I talked the other day about this. When that person comes onto the airplane and they've got their neck pillow and Mm -hmm. they've got their... I don't know. What other thing? You know what I mean? Uh, give me the other examples that you can't. I do. Well, they often have, you know, like slippers or, you know, fluffy socks to wear. And they'll have a neck pillow. They might have a back pillow. They might have uh, just all kinds of things for comfort. I used to actually travel with one of those things that you uh, would screw into the um, the air vent so that you're not getting, you know, dirty air blown on you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Gail, I would look at you. Yes. And roll my eyes, right? I'm sure you would. That's right. Now, however, if I were sitting next to or across from another person who is like me, dominant in self-preservation, yeah. we, you know, it would be thumbs up because it would it would look like we're both ready to sort of camp out for the trip, <laughs> right? But we've got everything with us that we need, right. and we've got our Kleenex, and we've got our nose spray, and we've got our anti-germ gel for our hands. I mean, we don't want the person next to us sneezing on us, right, you know. Right, right. There's just a con sort of awareness like it's on your radar about staying safe staying healthy staying in yeah in good health now if that happens to be your least favorite uh favored instinct then you roll your eyes at that person then you roll your eyes at that and you think that is just so stupid and crazy and and annoying it's so interesting how we judge i mean this comes down to judging other people just because they're not like us really oh it sure does yeah so there's there's a lot of kindred spirit in in when you are with uh, friends or loved ones or people or socializing with people who have the same dominant instinct as you because you get them, you get them. Like one of my best friends here is a is a self preservation dominant type three, and you know I was just over at her house last night helping her hang a new fixture and 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 measuring the table for a new rug and. You know, we're comparing new things that we found uh, in the health supplement field, and and we go shopping. And so part of what uh, is important in the self-preservation dominant is, you know, the nesting. And and so uh, feathering the nest is important, you know, and having a house that's really comfy and cozy. And when people come over, whatever they need, it's there. You know, I've got a freezer in the basement, and I've got bears of everything and food and you know my refrigerator is just overflowing with food i've just got i'm stocked i've got a generator you know if the lights go out or there's a power outage everybody in the neighborhood comes to my house because i've got everything we could live here for you know months yeah yeah (laughs) all right let's move on to the next one sexual or the attraction instinct Mm -hmm. so the sexual slash attraction instinct is um, most basically about perpetuation of the species, which of course means it's about mating. Um, without that, again, we wouldn't be here, we wouldn't survive, we have to uh, procreate in order to continue the, the, the survival of the species. 
And then there are a lot of other behaviors that go along with that. Uh, in the animal world, we see a lot of, uh, especially in the mating season, we see a lot of aggression, right, and competition uh, among the males, particularly for the females. We see a lot of uh, territorial uh, fights and displays, and uh, it's about arousal, and it's also about um, the reason we call it the attraction instinct. It's because it's it's not just about mating and having sex, it's about attracting the opposite sex. It's about, you know, the wonderful, beautiful dances that tropical birds do. Um, it's about, uh, you know, flashing our feathers. And, and in, the, in the human world, of course, you know, it's about, it's about chemistry. It's about arousal. It's about preening. It's about displaying our, whatever we believe our attractive qualities are, whether it's our, our physical, our looks, our, our build, or, you know, how we we put together our clothes or our hair or whatever it is. It's like we display those parts of ourselves in order to attract a mate, in order to mate and procreate, uh, you know, the species. Okay, so if someone's uh, sexual or attraction instinct is their dominant uh, mm -hmm. instinct, and, oh, I don't know, let's say they are a four on the Enneagram scale, an individualist, <laughs> just to p randomly pick a number. Right. Um, how did, what does that look like? Well, okay, so we have a name for each of the, so there are nine types and there are three, uh, three instincts, so that gives us 27 actual, what some people call subtypes sometimes, uh, uh, different flavors of Enneagram personality type. Mm. And each of them has a name, and for this, the... The type four who is dominant in sexual instinct, we call that for the infatuation four. And what happens for all the types is that the instinct sort of messes with or interacts with the passion of the type. The passion of the type for the four is envy, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something that all fours uh, deal with on a daily basis, envy of other people that have what I don't have. Um, uh, and so if this is in the sexual dominant instinct field, that envy uh, results in kind of envy and hypersensitivity in areas that have to do with sexual or attraction. So the sexual fours are tend to be really, really romantic people. They're just they become rapturous over someone that they maybe don't even know or they just saw you know, on the subway or something, but they can very quickly become infatuated with people and have this enormous sort of hyper-romantic feelings and imaginings and fantasies about someone else. And they have very, very, all fours have very, very, you know, deep, intense um, feeling lives, internal lives. So for the sexual dominant four, all of that deep, intense feelings is directed at, is aimed at, you know, the ideal other so I'm, I'm rapturous about, you know, this other person. It could be someone I'm in a, in a relationship with, but it could also be someone I just met or don't even know. So mm. fours who are sexual, they're, they're emotionally very vulnerable, um, but they're also one of the more aggressive types of four. Fours generally uh, a withdrawn type, but the sexual four tends to be more aggressive, and they have lots of dynamism, lots of charisma. They can seem dangerous sometimes. You know, they're like the bad boy, the biker guy, or, you know, the, the boy that your mother warned you, me, <laughs> against, you know, hanging out with. Like, they have a kind of a smoldering, uh, deep, dark, they, have, they generally have, like, 
uh, uh, intense eyes that you could just get lost in. And they, they idealize the other person yeah. um, and uh, tend to have very, very stormy relationships going back and forth between idealizing the other and then also like degrading the other or not wanting to have Or rejecting them, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so let's say uh, somebody whose primary instinct is, I don't know, self-preservation and their bottom one, the one, the blind spot is their sexual attraction instinct. Right. Um, they would look at, at, for example, a four whose sexual attraction, uh, you know, instinct is at the top. They would look at them as what, like perverted, like weird, like go away, icky. I don't know. Um, it, they would look at them like you know, get a room. Right, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's like the sexual dominant because it's all about. Uh, chemistry and attraction, and it's kind of smoldering and juicy, and there's this incredible uh, um, energetic attraction mm. between people. So if someone who's low or blind spot is sexual, when they see this kind of behavior, it feels just like we, when you see someone on the airplane. It feels like it, it's annoying, and it feels like acting out. So people who are low in that sexual attraction um when they see someone who's dominant in it, it it looks like sexual acting out. Maybe it just looks like, yeah, it's just too much. It's annoying. Okay, and and finally, uh, the the social instinct. Tell us about this. Okay, so the social or adaptation uh, instinct is about our place in the larger community. It's about family, community. It's about our affiliations. Um, it's about our contribution and belonging. And it's also the instinct that allows us and allows uh, mammals to nurture their young. It's very much about emotional bonding, uh, mother and child and family bonding. And we see this in the the animal uh, kingdom with um, herds, the herd instinct, right, that um, animals like like to live together, like to be together. So this is an aspect of, of self-preservation because there is safety in numbers, and social dominant people, you know, really know that. So it's the flock, it's the herd, it's about nurturing the young, uh, and it's also about the social order, the social hierarchy. People who are dominant in the social instinct tend to be uh, have a lot of social intelligence and they often are the ones who go into politics i would say in my experience at least 90 percent of politicians are dominant in the social instinct why because they need those skills they need to be able to read the group they need to be able to interpret people's uh words and looks and facial gestures and uh, have this uh, be savvy about social politics. So people who are dominant in social are looking very much to belong. You know, they want to find their community. They want to uh, contribute to community, whether it's a church community or a school community or a, a town community. So it can be local. It can also be, um, you know, national, international. But it's about bonding and affiliating. And also it's about Part of that social intelligence is about adapting to other people, like, you know, to live in a, in a tribal situation, the early community situations. We have to be able to adapt to other, to other people in order to get along. And one of the, the main components of that has to do with reciprocity, which is a social, um, uh, something that social dominant peoples are very aware of. 
which means that if I do something for you, if I go, if I have a good hunt, you know, this week and I bring back, you know, a lot of meat or fish and you didn't get out to hunt this week because you're sick, I'll bring my, you know, over to your cave and I'll share it with your, with your family. However, if next week I'm sick and I can't go out and hunt or fish and you don't share with me what you've brought back, I, I notice that. Not only do I notice it, I'm going to tell everybody about that. Hmm. So social people, social dominant people are the ones who are sort of keeping track of who's trustworthy in the group, you know, who's, who's, um, who's good at reciprocity or who's being selfish, who's being truthful. Uh, you know, who's stabbing who in the back. So they're very aware of social interactions and social uh, relationships. And, of course, all of those things help to be a politician or really anything in the social sphere. Sure, sure. Okay, well, let's, let's uh, <laughs> for the sake of brevity and uh, radio uh, time space uh, stuff, let's talk about me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I think my, my blind spot is, is self-preservation. Okay. I think that's my lowest one. So if I was to stack these three, that would be at the bottom. I'm having a hard time figuring out whether the social mm-hmm. uh, instinct or the sexual attraction instinct is the dominant one. Mm-hmm, for you. Yeah, for so, me. Okay, so if you are social dominant, type four, we call that the outsider. So the passion, again, is envy. But in this case, in the social... It's envy and hypersensitivity in areas of, of social concern, in the social arena. So they're particularly apt to see themselves as not like anybody else, totally unique. Well, that's um, a four I, anyway. Yes, but in particular, it is in relationship to other people in the group, other people in school, other people at work, other people in the community, right. in my church. It's like I really feel like that, that outsider. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not like anybody else, and so there's a lot of discomfort usually in the social milieu okay. because I feel like I'm clumsy, I didn't get the manual, I don't know how to be, I, don't know, I can't smile if I'm not feeling happy, I can't do the social graces, you know, and there tends to be also some shame uh, attached to this because I don't feel like I do well in social settings and activities. So I'm I'm I can be more withdrawn. Where we said the sexual dominant tends to be more a little more aggressive, a little more out there yeah, yeah. because I'm relating to other people in terms of my my energy. And, but you know, but I, but in in my case, uh, Gail, I would say, you see, I'm looking at the uh, at the social type here, um, and you know the questions are, you know, they go into walk into a room and and uh, okay, they they notice from a sociological point of view, you know, are there groups forming? Who's talking with who? Who's paired up? Is there anyone important here? Anyone I should get to know? Right. It, it doesn't make them sound that doesn't make them sound like they're socially unaware and want to hide in the corner. That sounds like they are observational. So I'm observational, and I'm and I'm certainly not a hide in the corner guy. Right. So all of those things that you were mentioning, those are internal activities that are going on mentally and emotionally for the four. I'm having emotional responses and reactions to all of those things that I'm seeing. Oh, those two are paired up. Hmm, I kind of like that guy, but he's with her, so I'm not feeling, I'm feeling envious about that. Yeah, I'm always thinking that. This person is, you know, clearly knows how to be social and and glad hand everybody and make small talk. I don't know how to do that, so I'm envious of that. Okay. Okay. All right. So in that case, then, I guess my primary instinct would be the sexual or attraction one, which just makes me sound like some typical male pervert. Yep. I'm sorry. It just (laughs) sounds like that. 
So, again, as, as I always say in, when we're talking about Enneagram types, um, there are healthy, average, and unhealthy, and neurotic, and psychotic expressions of right. this. And the same thing holds true in the, uh, with, with the instincts. Like, you can have a very healthy expression of the instincts. What we do when we do the work on the instincts is we find out how out of whack they are, how out of balance. Generally, whichever one is dominant, we're overly compulsively um, concerned about this, like it's what keeps us up at night. We're worried about it all day long. If it's self-preservation, we're worried all day long about, you know, paying the bills and money coming in and, and health and all of that kind of thing. So if the, so the work on this and what we, what we do to address this is we, we try to bring them more into balance so that we're not compulsively um, uh, acting out the dominant one all the time, but also we want to bring into our consciousness, bring onto the radar the blind spot one. And when we do that, they tend to go more into balance and not be so, you know, crazily okay. out. All right, Gail, it's 3.07. It's 3.07, Gail. It is impossible to talk to you about this stuff because, well, in a, within a short, you know, and, and even our segments, our segments on our show are ridiculously long compared to most radio shows. Uh, but it's there's so much ground to cover. And the point of having Gail on the show is is to tease you into exploring more about this because the more you understand yourself, the more you can stop beating yourself up for being yourself. The more you can understand other people, the more this will help you judge less and relate more because that person is just being that person. The Enneagram Institute is who Gail is with. She's a senior faculty member of the Enneagram Institute, and the website is EnneagramInstitute.com. May I suggest strongly going to EnneagramInstitute.com and doing the test that they have online there. Uh, it is a brilliant, brilliant assessment. Pay the 15 bucks or whatever it is and do the big one. You can do the cheap free one, too. Uh, cheap free one, that's a uh, redundant uh, phrase there. But, but it anyway. emphasizes the point. It does, yeah. Gail? Yes. Thank you. You're welcome, Drew. It's always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure. And we will <laughs> chat with you again soon, very soon, I hope. All right, right, will do. Take okay, bye-bye.